This is CliffCentral.com. Samrona Noke! Wow, it's just uh, won a lifetime award at uh, the Metros uh, this uh, last weekend. It is Arthur Mike! I don't even know if I can say what this song is called. What's it called, Rory? Hey, Rory. Where are you, Rory, right now? Eh? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Where yeah, are you yeah, right yeah. now? <laughs> I was trying to pretend like I wasn't around when that song was played. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Yoo! So, that is Athamafukate. The song is called Kafir. Don't call me Kafir. That was a song that he came up with uh, in the 90s somewhere. Probably a bit of protest art. Um, yeah. And Do you remember Quito? Yo! Oh, these guys are uh, the real, man. These and guys it's still, are the real. It's still a part of, it's still a part of who we are, man. It's, it's, it's a part of who we are. Uh, and it's taking us back to those moments when artists, uh, were engaged in the struggle and were willing to take it, uh, to, to the airwaves. Uh, this is, uh, we, we've got somebody who's already saying, yellow fucking donors in the studio are cheeky. Awesome start. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a very, very cheeky show. Thank you so much to Gareth and the team. Welcome to Frankly Speaking. It is 9 until 11, Wednesday morning. Hey, you have your say about you, what you really want to talk about here in South Africa. Uh, we're available on every platform. Today, we are speaking about are the police friends or foe? Are the police public enemy number one? Yeah. So last week we spoke to students, right? And um, we're talking about all the student uprisings uh, we saw on uh, the Northwest campus. Um, the fires go out. We saw on UCT. We saw bulldozers taking down a shack. Uh, Vitz and UJ. We saw a whole bunch of private security firms um, militarizing the campuses. And a whole bunch of people were saying, why are the police tear gassing us? Why are they shooting at us? And uh, there were allegations of live ammunition on uh, n- the Northwest uh, University campus uh, just last week. It is crazy to think that this is where we are in 2016. There's another side to the story, though. Some might argue and say, look, look at what happened at the Northwest uh, University. Uh, do you expect... Do you expect that to happen across all of the campuses? And would it have happened if the cops weren't on, on the scene? I mean, we saw what happened. Uh, 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 buildings uh, were set alight, but there was also reports of uh, live ammunition being used and uh, students, uh, a student dying. So the question is, was that force justified? And, and on public institutions, in, in educational institutions like that, is that type of force justified? So it's a big issue, and it's not just a South Africa issue, right? We're seeing a lot of uh, 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 music coming out. Uh, we've got Beyonce. Beyonce, 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 <laughs> Beyonce has come out. What's a, what's a, what's that song again? Is it Formation? It's Formation, Formation, right? Yeah, so yeah. Formations come out, uh, and then there was a, there was another song. Um, what's that other one called, Andrew? I don't know which one. You no, know. Uh, oh, fuck the police! Ah, oh, there we man. go. Come on, man. That's, that's, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so there's there's been a lot of discussions worldwide. I think the interesting question is, have the police got more militant? We remember Becky Kiela, eh? Yes. And uh, Becky Kiela said, "Shoot to kill." Yeah. Um, which is a very very interesting statement given the times. Um, and I believe that. 
it just has continued. Yeah, and you if know? you if you look at uh, where we've come from as a nation, the police were essentially militarized, right? They used to go into townships, uh, and they were really really brutal. And um, with the advent of democracy in South Africa. Uh, they they got rebranded and they became the police services as opposed to a police force, and they were meant to align themselves to position themselves as being in service of the people and not opposed to the people. Uh, but then uh, moving on from there, they have they have you know when when crime was seemingly out of control, and they decided that they want to go back to being a police force mm-hmm. um, and and being militarized. And we remember Bekikel actually started to drive a lot of that. We we began to see things like Ama Beret in the townships. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, those were the cops that were sort of paramilitary type uh, cops going into into communities and 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 being accused of all sorts of brutalities. And then more recently, we've seen things like Marikana. We saw Andris Tatane. We saw the incident where where the one guy was chased down by cops and shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so saw, so it's just scary. What was that Mozambican individuals? No? Mido. Yes. Mido, right? So he was dragged by the cops. Are those either are those isolated incidents, and are those things driven by just the individuals, or are they more something that is cultural that permeates across the whole police force? And what 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 do we make of this? And and of course, there's also accusations. At least there've been there've been there've been accusations leveled against. Uh, uh, our president uh, Jacob Zuma to say he he's got the security cluster firmly in his grip. Where do the police get the instructions from? Do they get them right from the top, and are they under the control of President Zuma? We've heard, for example, the Hawks are going after the uh, uh, Pravin Godan um, in uh, more more recently, right? So, is a question of are they being used as instruments to fight political battles, or are they indeed in service of the people? Yeah, I think interestingly enough, before we get to our first guest, Section 49 of the Criminal Procedure Act states the following, which is the police may use deadly force to defend themselves or other people from death or grievous body, bodily harm. Section 49 also states that they may also use such force to prevent the flight of a person who presents a substantial risk of causing death or grievous bodily harm in the future. Now, why is that problematic? Because how do we decide when a person should be regarded as presenting a flight risk and then we need to gun them down. Is that flight as in run away? Or as in run away. I'm running away. away from you. Yeah, yeah. So you, you can might shoot cause me. harm in the future so yeah. I'm allowed to shoot you wow. according to our constitution. So this is, this is our constitution. Yes, yeah, section 49. Here we go. It's read read it again. It's all here. Um, the, section 49 states that the police may use deadly force to defend themselves or other people from death or grievous bodily harm. Section 49 also states that they may also use such force to prevent the flight of a person who presents a substantial risk of causing death or grievous bodily harm in the future. Mm. That is how we start our show today. Hey, if you want to get involved on WeChat, cliffcentral.com is where to go. Or you can hit us up on Twitter at Rory Shabalala or at Yebo underscore Levy. What do you think about the police? Are they public enemy number one? Are you afraid of the police? Police are supposed to be, you know, the place where you go for safety and security. Are you afraid of the police? I'm always afraid of the police, actually. Like, I, I was thinking about it. I had to get my... my um my ID certified, and you go into a police station. I'm freaked out. I'm really, I'm, I'm freaked out going into a police station because I'm scared of those. Guys. All dressed, <laughs> all dressed in that light hue, skin complexion. I'm, you, I'm, you're scared of the police. Let me tell you something. So I've been involved in three incidents 
in, in just the last eight months, I was at uh, the union buildings for the Fees Must Fall. I've been in Jeppe's town in a number of different protests. And every single time I've been shot at with um, rubber bullets. And when you get shot at with rubber bullets, and I've been hit. So in Jeppe's town, I got hit with a rubber bullet. And it's not pleasant. Mm. It's not fun and it's bloody sore. But there's somebody uh, listening somewhere and saying, "Yeah, but what were you but doing?" But you deserved with? it. Yeah, but <laughs> did they chase well, you down? Did you they like, "Hey, let's, let's, you, let's find right out, there." Let's find out from someone who, who's, who is uh, on uh, on the beat, as to say, all the time. It's Daily Mavericks uh, roving journalist Greg Nicholson. Greg, good Greg mo- Gay. Greg, good morning to you. How's it going, guys? Thanks for having me back on. I thought this day would never come. <laughs> it's, it shouldn't have come, to be honest, but we didn't have any other guests, so you had to come on, Greggy. Well, 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 I'm glad to know that I'm, I'm your last, you know, your last... Your last resort. so many others, and then, yeah, exactly. and then it came to me. Exactly. Greg, before we, before we begin, uh, we just want to simply say this to you. Greg Nicholson is uh, he's on the Daily Maverick platform here on Cliff Central as well. He is a journalist at the Daily Maverick. He has been involved in more police protests than you can imagine. It's also his birthday, so we thought we'd just uh, put this out there. Greg, happy birthday, Thank mate. You. Happy birthday, Thank Greg. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to be spending it with you guys. <laughs> just yeah. on the side, what is that accent, Rory? It's the Aussie accent, Greg. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> It certainly is, and I, and I think your listeners should know that they can hear it on 1 to 2 p.m. on Tuesday. <laughs> An authentic one. <laughs> look at you, look at right. you. Greg, uh, we're talking about police brutality, um, crimes against the police, and uh, you know excessive force by the police. You've been on the beat in South Africa for, for a number of years now. You uh, reported extensively over the Marikana massacre. Um, in your mind, let's let's start with the police generally. What is their what is their frame of mind at the moment? What's their psyche? The, the police general frame of mind. <laughs> I mean, uh, what you've seen. I, think, I mean, I know you can't talk for every policeman, but I mean, you know, you get into these situations, you're called to protest mm-hmm. all the time. Okay, in, I, I, I can talk particularly more in, in the realm of protests, and I'd say, well, well I'd say there's, there's one thing that we have to mention if you want to talk about police, the, the like police officers who are, who are going out there responding to crimes, responding to protests. Um, their attitude at the moment, I think many of them are quite shaken scared and angry um, over over the police killings that we particularly witnessed last year, even early this year. And and many of them, I think, are angry, they're scared, they, they want to crack down. Yet at the same time, there's, there's been an increased focus on, on police brutality, particularly with some of the protests um, at Fees Must Fall last year, as well as following on from the Marikana Commission and the Marikana Massacre, where cops are also scared now to... They're worried that they're going to be... If they have to use force, they're going to be held accountable. And so they sort of feel, I think, as from some of the officers I've spoken to, they feel, feel in a little bit of a bind, you know, like they've been, like they've almost had their balls chopped off right, right when they need them. Mm. Greg, uh, so you are there on the ground. You get to see these guys in action in many, in, in many sort of, uh, protest, uh, environments. Just, uh, take us through your, your, your sense or paint a picture for us of the demeanor when they arrive there. Um, the way they're communicating. Does it, is it, is it the sign of people who are confidently in charge of situations? Do they 
seem nervous? Mm. Do they seem ready f- to kill? W- what sort of take people who've never been there, right there, and and describe the faces and the voices and and the image of the police on the on the ground? I think I think for that I'd have to start to describe just uh, I think service delivery protests or, or any protests uh, really in general the, um, the the dynamics of them and so. So what generally happens is communities, um, you know, often it's, often it's communities in townships or informal settlements who, who are complaining over often one or two issues that spark, um, that spark their sort of anger, where, where a relationship with the authorities, you know, be it, be it municipal government, um, provincial government, um, councils, corruption, whatever it is, and, and that is combined, so something will spark their sort of anger and then they'll decide to protest, and that's often combined with a broad range of factors um, related to all sorts of things that, that leads them onto the street, right? Mm. And so protest, by its very definition, is uh, disruption. And so, so often the, the, the disruption occurs at a place slightly outside often or on the, on the outskirts of of wherever this sort of community is often based. So what I mean is it often sort of comes down to a road, a main road. So um, if you look at somewhere like the Zanspreet uh, Informal Settlement um, by Honeydew, that, that then will be Bears Nordia, Peter and Bears Nordia Road, right, because they're sort of busy thoroughfares. And these protesters have decided that the only way anyone's going to give a shit about what they're talking about is if they actually close down the road, disrupt traffic, um, get get attention. Make sure the media is there. Try try somehow to to cause enough disruption so that you know an MEC or an MMC might come through and actually listen to their their concerns, take their memorandum, and hopefully do something about it. But so what generally happens is when when these guys often early, quite early in the morning, depends on the protest, of course, but quite early in the morning. You know, come come onto a road and maybe maybe burn burn some tires or even throw some rocks at cars just to, just to really sort of send the message home. Cops, of course, come and respond. Mm. Excuse me. And it's it's sort of a funny thing, like being at these protests. And I'll, I'll describe what I mean. So there's often it, it's sort of like rolling battles for this sort of communal area, you know, and depending on. And, and the mood, the mood of the violence, I guess I'd say, by both protesters and police depends on their interaction. And so often, you know, when cops get there, they'll often, if, if, if things are like, if, if people are really throwing rocks at cars or something like that, they'll often just start shooting rubber bullets straight away, just rolling and rolling and start shooting. But often they might just come up and, you know, go and speak to a couple of community leaders, see what's going on. And then they'll, you know, sort of say, you know, you have to go on the, you know, to be on the side of the road. Community leaders will be like, no, we don't want to. Um, and then, so there are these sort of lull periods where where the police accept the protesters and maybe accept them if they if they're not causing causing too much shit. Mm. Um, but then at other times, there there are these moments where they're like, you know, now's the time to push them back, get them out of this area, chase them into their into their residences or, or their their base wherever they are, arrest as many as we can, fire rubber bullets, sun grenades, sun grenades, and tear gas. And often, how this happens, it's sort of from, from from what I've seen, I think, um, from a critical point of the police, is that often they sort of exacerbate the violence in the situation mm. by, without warning, just sort of coming in in, in a nyala, in a, in a the, the big sort of police truck from everyone knows them, um, mm. and and shooting out the windows, the rubber bullets and tear gas, 
and they really like like they don't they don't just sort of like roll through you know like quietly. They, the 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 Nyala will sort of speed through the area, shooting as fast as they can, and then and then sort of maybe do sort of like almost a donut, and then often shoot out. I mean, go out of the community or go into another another sort of down another road chasing other protesters, and then it sort of gets out gets out of there as sort of fast as it can. Um, and then uh, sometimes you have sort of lines of cops, you know, who are like, this situation has to stop. Um, be it because we either want this road or we're just sick and tired of these protesters. And they'll sort of move in in a line and just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot with rubber bullets and tear gas and stun grenades. Greg. Pushing these guys back. Greg, just, just, uh, you know, the, I think though the one thing is these policemen are typically drawn from the same community that they're supposed to police. Mm-hmm. Do you t- mm-hmm. ever see a sort of nervousness about policemen where, when, when they're, they're, when they're executing their duties? And do you ever, uh, you get to interact with, 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 with the police and to, to get a sense of what their, their feelings are. And do, do you ever see community members saying things like, you know, we know where you live, you know, we're actually fighting for you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit. Um, the last instance of that sort of thing, it wasn't really community based, but it was, uh, I guess more, more racially solidarity based, which, is so often in these Fees Must Fall protests with students, when, when black cops would be firing on the black students, um, the students would, you know, say, what are you doing? You're supposed to be part of us. Like, we're trying to fight for your kids as well as ourselves. Mm. Um, but in, on, on the community level, like in service delivery protests, yeah, you do see that. You do see these guys from the community. You're all sort of surrounding communities. But the cops sort of act pretty stoic. Um, I think they're quite nervous often, you know, when they sort of get close to protesters because they don't know really, you know, what's going to happen. Mm. And, and I think that's something we have to remember, that these often are, they can be dangerous situations, so the cops, you know, can be scared and they have to take precautions. Um, but, yeah, so often you can chat to them, you can chat to the police a bit, but they, they're often sort of fairly quiet. So, you know, they'll, they'll talk a little bit about it. But they're, I think many of these guys as well often have to, like if we're talking about public order policing as well, which is, you know, a specialised policing unit to, to, to sort of counter protests, um, they go to a lot of these protests and they, they, they're... The question is how well trained they are, um, but they, 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 they are used to this stuff. On what's uh, on WeChat on WhatsApp on WeChat we've got a big booty bender saying guys like seriously speaking now f the police in 1994 the SAB changed from being a police force to being a police services but in recent times i.e fees must fall the cops have went back into the f- to being a force again uh, where they are being brutal with civilians therefore f the police man uh, Greg oh. you, you've you've seen a, a whole bunch of these protests I've been with you uh, on one or two you're very calm and relaxed and uh, I must say you, you did save my life once or twice that's for sure <laughs> um there's a, there's an interesting discussion and you mentioned it in your article which was absolutely brilliant uh, just yesterday on on the ufs matter and if you haven't checked it out go go check it out on the daily maverick but you spoke about the police almost along along racial lines uh, we saw mm-hmm. ufs uh, last week apparently being accused of shooting only at the black students and not at the white students thoughts on that like do you think that the police are are racially inclined is it easier to shoot rubber bullets at a black person than a white person i think i think it can be hard to say because because white people protest so so rarely or or you know, often, often if white people do sort of stand up in their communities, it will be, you know, like with the Zuma March, uh, Zuma March Four marches, which were rather, um, they were predominantly white, but also, um, people just sort of, they, they weren't very intense, I would say, from my experience. Um, but so, so at UFS, the students there, 
say, or the black students there, the activists and protesting students say that, yes, they, they did only, only chase away, chase away the black students and pursued them into their, into the sort of university buildings, firing sun grenades and rubber bullets at them. They definitely said that, um, that, that only the black students were targeted. The, the local Afro Forum, um, youth leader there said there were sun grenades also fired into the white crowd. So I guess, um, um, that, that could sort of partly answer the question. But I think, I think in general, in the general context from what I've seen, there, it, it, it might be, it might be hard to say that police only fire at, uh, black protesters because mostly I only see black protesters. But I do think there is a, almost a disregard for, for humanity and, and the, the dignity and the rights of your average community protester. I think, I think, and I think the whole country, not just police, but there's, there's almost a systemic, um, view of, of sort of, um, particularly lower classes and, and, and sort of those who protest that, that their, their demands and needs aren't justified and, and behavior, behaving more violently towards them is justified. Mm. Greg, uh, so we've heard about this militarization of, of the police force. Um, do you do you think it's a thing? Is it real? Uh, are, are we seeing police? Well, you know, is is this and, and what does it mean? What's the impact well, on the ground? Well, so, sort of the militarization of the police force follows almost a policy under Becky Pellet, um, the former police commissioner, and where you know he changed all the all the normal sort of police um, service names to to things like brigadier, you know, and mm, mm, mm. Um, and and whatnot, going back to those sort of old names, and also. Also, following on certain statements from um, from political leaders that you know the shoot to kill sort of sort of you know type type, type endorsement, and and at the same time, I think I think with the sort of rise and and, and increasing prominence of units sort of like the tactical response team, mm-hmm. um, which is you know like quite quite a highly um, armed and trained uh, sort of unit. Um, according to I think. I think according to the experts I've spoken to, you know, I'm not, I'm not like a, a policy expert, but according to the experts I've spoken to, I think it, it, it essentially just denies the service part, I think, as that guy on WeChat was saying, mm. um, sort of reduces the service part of, of, the, of the policing um, function and, 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 and creates it as a force. And, and there's all sorts of things um, that you can take from that. And, but, I, but I do think that in protesting sense, it, it led to... I think at the end of the day, it leads to less less discussion, um, mediation, and and use of of potentially safer um, policing methods, and more and more cracking down, more force. Um, and I think obviously the ultimate example of this is is the Americana massacre. And mm. I think it's also worth pointing out that this is uh, so the idea of. of, of so, so police demilitarization is a current a current strategy of of uh, police minister Nazi and Schleckel. That, that's one of his goals. So, so it's not. Um, I, I don't think it's. You know, we're not making making up rumors or something when we say when we say the police are too highly militarized. But mm-hmm. it's also and that, it, it, that that came from the Marikana Commission, where where the commissioners, the report, it was again and again repeated um, that that in terms of public order policing and and responding to protests. It seems very questionable if 
if the police are currently um, taking the right approach. Greg, uh, this uh, militarization, where should the ordinary man in the street, where should uh, Andrew and myself fall on this? Should we, su- should we be in support of it or should we be opposed to it? All the movies we've watched growing up show the FBI you know, chasing through streets, uh, guns and all. We, we, we know that the SWAT team's uh, special weapons and tactics are, are paramilitary sort of wings of the police uh, mm-hmm. on the movies that we've watched. So we've just grown up in a society where they're heroes. Uh, why is it a problem to have a militarized uh, police force uh, if, of course, they're pointing their guns at the criminals and not the people? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the question. Are they pointing their guns at the criminals? And that's the thing I think Andrew raised earlier. It's not. I, I don't think it's a problem to have highly specialized and armed response units in, in the police force. I think they're needed in South Africa, and we have, particularly because of sort of organized crime, and and uh, other other potentially very dangerous situations, we do need highly trained officers and, and units um, who can respond to particular situations with force. I think the the problem with militarization is what happens when when officers do respond. Are they going to take um, the the most safest option and use the least harm possible, which they're supposed to do, being being uh, you know supposing to protect people, or are they going to take a more violent route? And I think that. That's the, that's the sort of core question, and there's so, there's so many subsections of this, but that's the sort of core question um, um, on, on the impact of a militarized police force. Greg, I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, given, given you, your experiences. Um, the police, do, do you think that, are they a trustworthy bunch for you? You know, if, if something happened to you, you've been robbed or mugged once or twice in, in, in CBD, are you running to the police and saying, help me, help me, or are you just like, oh, okay, man, I've just got to do this myself? So, so I think there's two things. There's, first of all, there's my own personal experience, you know, like being robbed myself, you know, with, with outside of work and all those sort of things. And I haven't, um, I haven't personally gotten the service from or the, the help from the police that I, that I would have liked. Um, I have. There are many good police officers, and, and they do, you know, police officers obviously solve crime, and many people rely on them. So so on that front, your main question today is, like, are they public enemy number one? I'd say no, but they're, they, they, are, they are very problematic. Now, then, to take from my work side on covering protests and also, also dealing with um, a lot of different community activists, even outside of protests, I think... I do not. I certainly do not think, and I do not trust the police on that front. Then, because I think their their approach, particularly to to protest, is sort of at some point crack down on them, try and arrest ringleaders if you can, whether they're being violent or not. Arrest anybody else you might just sort of come across. So, so let's say you know an old woman walking home with a loaf of bread that just happens to get caught in the crossfire when the police start start mm. shooting rubber bullets and and, and throwing people into vans. Yeah. Um, they'll they'll arrest her, and I've seen that multiple times. Mm. Um, and and you ask, you know, for what? Like she wasn't even part of these protests; she didn't burn anything. And and the same thing, even with guys who were protesting, they'll just grab you and throw you in the van, you know. And and then and then sort of you get locked up for a while. And often often with a lot of these sort of public violence cases at um, that stemming from arrests of protests, they're they're often thrown out of court. So um, so so in in a sort of protest sense. I think there's a long way to go for the for the police, and and I think we can only hope that that Minister Nathan Sleko's um, sort of current goal to really reform the police actually, you know, sees fruition, and and the the panel that's being established in terms of um, public order policing 
actually sort of delivers some some strong recommendations that are, that are implemented. But I think it's also worth mentioning that, so, so I think back to Rory's question as well, as to, you know, sort of looking at the FBI and whatnot and, and these, these strong forces on the ground that, you know, we've watched in movies growing up. It's like, yeah, we, we do, you know, we, we do need sort of officers who can do such stuff in that right situation, following the right standing orders and protecting citizens. The mm. key thing, though, I think that we need to transform the police is the training of officers needs to improve. It's simply, it, it, it's simply not up to scratch, I don't think. Mm. And two, we need, we need stronger, more stable leadership that can follow a clear vision. And I think the, the, over the years, um, the sort of swaps and changes and suspensions and infighting amongst, amongst the police leadership, both at national level and within provinces, is severely damaging to, towards achieving any sort of long-term improvement. All right, Greg, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much. Happy birthday to you, mate. Many, many more. You can chat, you can catch Greg Nicholson on the Daily Maverick Show here on Cliff Central between 1 and 2 every Tuesday. Uh, if you haven't seen his article yet, uh, go on to the Daily Maverick. I've also put it on our Twitter timeline, so check it out. It's on the UFS. It's brilliant. Greg, thank you so much, and keep safe. So that's Greg Nicholson uh, from the Daily Maverick talking to us about his experiences as a journalist. We need to get into the psyche of a police person, I think. You know, so I yeah, want to get so, a, a, so, a former so, policeman in, in here. And, yeah. And so, talk. so Greg, Greg essentially gave us the the view from somebody looking outside and saying, "Look, the police they they, they generally uh, just go in." It seems like the way that Greg is describing it, it's it's very haphazard you know there, there doesn't seem to be much of a strategy behind it you know i'm just thinking of that nyala driving in spray people with bullets do a donut spray people with bullets and then run out it, it doesn't <laughs> seem like there's it doesn't seem like there's coordination arrest anyone that's on site there's no know? strategy there right? it just doesn't seem to be strategy so maybe let's speak to the police and uh and, and find out or at least somebody who's been there and find out your dude What's up? What, 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 what must come to happen with you police officers, man? <laughs> All right, so we're on the line now. We've got Rory Stain. Uh, he served 18 years as a South African police officer, retiring in 1999. He was also one of President Mandela's protection team leaders with the rank of lieutenant colonel. This is as good as it gets. This guy is very highly decorated. He uh, also now has his own private security firm, doing a lot of work in Africa as well. Rory, uh, on the line from Sun City, good morning to you. Good morning, Andrew. How are you guys? Oh, morning, we, we, we are so good. We are so good. Lovely to chat to you. Uh, Rory, you're like a stalwart in, in terms of police protection and and uh, the policeman. I, I look at your profile picture and I must say, you look very much like the police guy that used to come to our primary school and, and was a, like a symbol of what good policemen used to look like. No, no. He doesn't look rotund. Stomach in, chest no, out, this guy. I'm he, telling you. He doesn't look round. He doesn't look round and like a, a donut eater, Rory. What? Uh, Rory, this is Rory. <laughs> Welcome hey, to the Rory, show. How are you, man? Good, good, good. Fine, thanks, guys. Rory, so maybe just take us back into just the process of becoming a police officer. Obviously, you've been out the force for a while, but um, yeah. I, I imagine you maintain links and so on with people in the force. What's the process of becoming a police officer? What qualifications, trainings, rank, and so on do you just to get to a point where you're a decent police officer? Well, under, speaking under correction, uh, well, certainly in my day, the minimum requirement was a, a matric uh, certificate. I understand that the police have increased that to, um, the, there, there may or may not now be some tertiary education requirement. And, and I think that's right. You know, if we, when we live in a country where there is so much unemployment, surely our, our, um, 
you know, our state, uh, our, our state departments, whether those be a, a government department working in service delivery or whether it be a police service, surely we should have the pick of the crop. Mm. So why, why not set a, a reasonably high educational qualification as the first requirement for entry? And then you, and then you screen, uh, you know, if, if there are anything between 25 and 40% of our of South Africa's youth unemployed, well, then take the best of them, give them proper training, and, um, and utilize them. And that is the key. The key is the proper training. When you see all of this haphazard, um, you know, police behavior, and um, one can go all the way back to Marikana mm. to, uh, you know, to understand what we're talking about. Really, what, um, what it is proving is two things. One, there is, not, there is not proper training being conducted. And two, there is also not proper um, management and command and control happening, which is to me a tremendous sadness. You know, if the, if the police taught me one thing, it is that a, a, a commander stands behind um, his or her men and women. You don't, um, you know, you don't hang your, your, your people out to dry. You're in there with them, and, um, and, and they draw confidence from that. What I see today is too much, you know, looking after number one mm. and not looking after the greater interest of the, the, of the men and women forces. who serve under you. And that's just a recipe for disaster. Doesn't no. matter how um, well paid you are, you're not going to stick around in any job if you don't have job satisfaction. Rory, th- th- just take us through training. So, so you've got your sure. matric uh, or, yeah. or, 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 and, and whatever else is required. Okay. What happens in the training that, that shapes you into a police? Because, and we ask this because it, it almost sometimes we, we just get the sense and maybe we might just be getting the wrong end of the stick here that uh, these guys are just not trained at all and uh, they're clueless. Is that even a fact or, or what sort of training do you go through to become a police officer? Okay, so there's a couple of questions in there. Uh, firstly, I really am not the best guy to talk to about what the police training looks like now, because I can tell you guys, and you can uh, you can prepare to get shocked. Mm. I was my police training happened over a full year, but it was in 1982. How many of you Oaks were born in 1982? <laughs> Let's not answer that question. You might be frightened. Okay, there you go. So, so I, you know, I'm, I'm probably not the best guy to talk uh, to you about what it is now. But in 1982, we did a full year's worth of training, and that um, that entailed quite a lot of um, stupid rubbish, like getting chased around until you can barely um, breathe or walk anymore. You know, kind of very, very militaristic. Mm. The idea being that you, you know, you. You break guys down um, uh, first, and then you build them up, and then they start to work together as a, as a unit. Now, be that as it may, but we were taught things like um, we were taught criminal law in terms of both the statutory law, in other words, what the acts say, you know, paragraph this, section that, and so on, as well as common law. I mean, there are, much of our law is written uh, where there are no statutes. You don't have a murder act. Mm-hmm. You know, you just murder is murder, and fraud is fraud. There's no fraud act. Mm. So we had two separate streams of understanding what criminal law was. We had um, a full uh, subject on the Criminal Procedure Act. You know, what are your powers of arrest? What are your powers of search and seizure? All of those kinds of things. We had we were trained and taught properly how to how to take down a statement from somebody, how to swear that statement into an affidavit. We were taught how to handle um, the investigation of an of an accident scene including drawing up a plan 
of what the accident scene looked like that you you know you could pass on to the investigator who would later investigate that um, that case. So we were taught a lot of things, mm. and then that was just in your basic training. Yeah. And then after that, you you did things like um, training in crowd control, and um, you know some of the stuff that we're seeing on our campuses would be a case in point. Mm. You can't just pitch up there with no plan. Mm. You know, there's got to be a whole process and a procedure about how you deal with unruly crowds and mobs and what your um, what your limitations are, if any. And uh, you know that kind of training was 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 not considered basic training. It was slightly more advanced training. Yeah. So I am really just concerned because um, I don't see too much discipline at the moment in the police. Uh, that, that's yet, exactly. Having, having said that, yeah. guys, you know, I must also clarify that there are there are so many good cops out there, men and women, who yeah. work who work so hard for the community. And I mean, you, 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 you doesn't matter what radio station you listen to, you can pretty much get feedback on that on a daily basis. But sadly, there's an equal amount of feedback that says, listen, these cops didn't do what they were supposed to do, or they yeah. did a, sh- a shoddy job of, of, of this and that. It's not an easy job, guys, um, but it starts with discipline, it starts with training, and it starts with good management. I can imagine, I can imagine, Rory, that um, you know, every day you go out there, you put your life on the line, and, um, and it, it can't be easy. You're, you're constantly worried uh, if, if, if this day might be the last. But... Um, Based on your experience, uh, what you're seeing now, um, and and yes, there are good cops, but but uh, the overwhelming sense that we seem to get, and maybe it's just the media reporting on the wrong thing, whatever it is, you get the sense that, that there's there's very limited public confidence in the police. What's your reading of uh, the state that the police are in right now, um, and and where are the where are the issues? Where do the issues lie? Why why are we no longer confident in our police force? Well, I, I think uh, the first way to answer that question is to say that uh, just like a fish rots from the head, it starts with good leadership. Now we've been through how many police commissioners, and we haven't had one police commissioner see out their term of office because there's always been this or that um, issue that prevents them from doing that. So. You can't have a stable and um, settled police service if your uh, leadership in that police service are, are, are not stable. So, so that's the first thing. And then you've got this, this uh, thickness, I would call it, of, uh, of commanders not looking after their men and women, but worrying about themselves. And that's a very broad gener- generalization, and, uh, and I appreciate that. And then the other problem that I see that I didn't really see that much of um, in, in my day and that is this, that if you become a cop as a means to earning a salary at the end of the month, then I think that you're probably in the wrong job. Because being a police officer, being a nurse, being a fireman, being a teacher, those are more calling than simply a job where you're going to take home a paycheck. And, um, and that's what I see as a bit of a problem. So if we don't do the, the sifting, vetting, and recruiting process thoroughly, so you choose the best of our young people that are without work and um, engender in them a passion to serve their communities and to make a difference, then we are um, unfortunately going to be faced with some of the stuff that we see where there's this lackadaisical attitude. People don't worry. They're not, um, you know, they're not in it there for the community cause. They're in it there just as a means to earn a salary. That's wrong. You know, policemen are called, police women are called, um, uh, more than just paid employees, I think. 
Rory, I'm, I'm so, I'm, I've always wanted to ask a policeman who went through the transition from apartheid to democracy. So yes. unfortunately you have to be that, that voice now. Um, but uh, as you said, you, you started in 1982. It's a long time ago. That was obviously, uh, in the height of the, the security state. Um, what was it like one day being told by your government that you need to protect the interests of a certain color, white people, um, and, and next day you're into democracy and now you need to protect everyone. Was it a difficult transition from a, from an individual's perspective? You know, like the, the, the societal upbringing, the training that you've gone through up until that point. Was it difficult to then change your mindset and, and look at black people the same as white people? It was. It was and it wasn't. Um, I think, I think that I, uh, was so privileged because I had the benefit of one extraordinary human being changing the way that I thought and that I behaved and that I'd been brought up and that I'd been trained. Because I was not one of those people, I was not one of those white South Africans who bought into everything that um, uh, the Freedom Charter said until I met Madiba. And I met him on pretty much on his inauguration day. And I was still watching to see whether what I thought was this political facade um, you know, let's, let's see how long you can keep that up. Let's wait till it crumbles. And of course, it never crumbled because it wasn't a facade at all. It was absolutely a genuine desire of his to build one South Africa. So he had a very profound effect on me. And I started to question everything that I'd kind of been brought up with. So um, if perhaps without that perspective, it would have been a far more difficult process. But once I bought into um, what people would euphemistically call um, the dream of the new South Africa. Once I brought into that, I brought into it totally. It wasn't then that difficult for me to, um, you know, to make that, that, that mind change. Because here's the thing. If you believe in democracy, and if the majority of South Africans voted for Madiba as our first democratic president, well then, you know, you need to, you need to stick to that principle. You can't then all of a sudden decide to not be, be a Democrat any longer. So, uh, you know, that was the kind of philosophical way that I got to, um, you know, to get my mind around that. But as I said, I had this, I had this incredible personal example in front of me, um, basically from day one, that, um, you know, was, was able to convince me that that was the way to go. Just before we let you go, two more questions. You sure. obviously witnessed uh, Marikana. What were your thoughts on, on Marikana, you know, seeing it, being a police officer yourself for so many years and seeing the footage of what was going on there? How did it make you feel? So... I have two very distinct and almost conflicting um, thoughts about Marikana. The one is, you will never convince me otherwise than that there was an absolute pre-planned agenda to attack and, and hopefully kill a whole bunch of policemen that day by those miners that attacked. And there's no doubt in my mind that, um, you know, uh, from the preparation and going to the Sangomas and doing everything that those guys did in preparation of that, um, they were... They were under attack, very, very uh, seriously under attack there. So I've got no problem with them, um, you know, retaliating. Those police officers who, who were under attack, they have a um, both a responsibility as well as a statutory um, kind of they have statutory protection in protecting their own their own lives. So, so that's the first thing. But the second thing was when they then decided to um, react again and and and, and deploy against those miners. That was a complete shambles. And that's what I'm telling you about, a lack of training and a lack of leadership on the ground. That didn't happen in the, in the old days. For better or worse, 
when we had riots, or whatever you wanted to call them in the old days, those commanders from the police riot units and the public order protection units, the public order policing units, they had brilliant commanders who were hands-on. They were on the ground issuing the right instructions and the training that was then, um, you know, exhibited by those cops um, was 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 uh, the training that required them to act in the in, in the correct manner to suppress whatever uprising there was. I didn't see that at Marikana. In fact, I saw a whole bunch of haphazard um, actions going on there with, with with no leadership. So those are my two comments on Marikana. One, I get it; those cops were under threat, and they had every right to protect themselves. But when they deployed against um, suppressing what has now become quite a, a violent situation, that wasn't great. And, you know, far too many people were killed. They didn't need to be killed. Now, I, I saw from your LinkedIn profile, you're into private security uh, and yes. a number of other things at the moment. But private security has become a huge uh, topical debate of late with regards to, uh, you know, on campuses, we're seeing a lot of private security firms um, holding fort effectively and militarizing the, the campuses. Do you think it's not a concern to have the, the kind of freedom that the private security firms have um, in South Africa where, where they can you know, protect themselves, they, they hold firearms, um, and, and, and a lot of them do shoot to, shoot to kill as well? No, I don't think, I don't think um, private security companies should ever be issued with a shoot-to-kill um, instruction. That is really the preserve of Essentially, the military, not even you know, not even necessarily the police, unless they you know they are in a situation such as Marikana. But if you're asking me for my comment about private security operating on the campuses, well, absolutely, we've got to do something about these, um, the hooligan behaviour that we're seeing there and the wanton destruction of property. I mean, have your cause by all means, but don't burn down libraries and buses and rubbish like that. And um, uh, again, I have to comment on what I perceive to be, and I could be wrong, but what I perceive to be very, very weak leadership from our university. They should have sorted it out right at the beginning of that roadside tall nonsense in Cape Town and got a grip on it and got a handle on it. And they should have had a plan for when, you know, this kind of behavior happens at our campuses. What I saw was university leadership kind of hiding behind the police. That's not a solution. Um, you know, there needs to be meaningful engagement and there needs to be a proper um, plan to understand how we are, how are we going to deal with students that are um, impinging upon the democratic rights of other students. You know, though, all of those philosophical debates, I'm not seeing too much of a, of a cogent answer from the university authorities on that, sadly. Looking, looking to the future, you know, Rory, what, what is what is the way forward here? I mean, the police seem to be getting worse. The police seem to be getting more scared, frightened. Is it a case yeah. of they're firing on on these protest marches because they're they're truly frightened? I think there is. There's a there's an element of that, both in terms of the protest marches at the universities and elsewhere, as well as when confronted with violent criminals. I think that there are times when the firepower in the hands of criminals completely terrifies the cops and they don't even want to go in, uh, you know, go in and go up against them. And that should not be. That is a tremendous sadness to me as a, as a former police officer to see that. Because that's not, the, that's not the response we want from our cops. So, you know, our cops are the thin blue line and they need to be there, um, you know, standing between us as the, as the community and the danger represented by criminals or, or any other form of, um, of threat, you know. Do you trust the cops? I, I trust. I see enough of the of of 
good policing still to, to, to say, yes, I do, but I don't trust all of the cops. And um, there are a lot of these incidents where you're having people pulled over in the small hours of the morning and intimidated in the most horrific way. Um, and, and then again, I don't see any follow-up reporting on what happened to those police officers responsible for that um, corrupt behavior. So that's a, that's a bit of a fence-sitting um, answer. Uh, <laughs> yes, um, in the majority of cases I do, but um, not, in, not in all the cases, no. Rory Stay, we're gonna we're gonna leave it there. Thank you so much. Cool. Uh, Eighteen years of police service, as well as Mandela's lead bodyguard. Uh, we really appreciate your time today. You're welcome, fellas. Have a good day. You too, Cheers man. Everybody. Rory Stain. Jeez, what do you think of that guy? Yeah, and he's very very interesting. It's good to have people who've got the experience. But what he's saying is clearly that there are good cops out there. Uh, there's just maybe something in the system that's just not working, uh, and and. It's a shame because it doesn't just uh, compromise us as the public, but it compromises those people that go every day to put their lives on the line um, to protect society. Uh, if you've just joined us, welcome to the show. It is, frankly speaking, 9 until 11. We're speaking, are the police public enemy number one? We just heard from Rory Stain. That was uh, Nelson Mandela's uh, lead bodyguard. We're going to be speaking to some of the police forces, JMPD as well as uh, the SAPs, as well as a guy named Gareth Newman who's written extensively on police brutality right after this. Stay with us. It is Frankly Speaking on your Wednesday morning. This is CliffCentral.com.